Listener Production. In this episode of From Zero, we're stripping things back and launching a brand new format, which we call Startup Insider. I'll be talking to well-known founders and getting their unique insight and perspective by breaking down a hot topic in the world of tech and startups to talk about the complex world of e-commerce. So we've, we've got Adir Schiffman back after, I think it was probably the most popular ever episode of this podcast when you were on last summer. Obviously, aside from your actual podcast there, but even my wife was saying she enjoyed the episode, which she, she never gives me compliments. So that's, uh, that was, that was I just feel I just feel overwhelming pressure from that because it means the only way is down. Well, she did say, I love that year, but you weren't so good. So, so there was actually is a fair bit, not on me, just all the pressure's on you. I feel so. like that's going to play well for me, this podcast, that <laughs> floating around in the back of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uphill for me, downhill for you. So I thought we talked, we had, I was talking about Buy Now Book later last time. And I think this time I'd love to talk about e-commerce, which is something close to both of our hearts. Uh, obviously, you've, you've been involved in a couple of e-commerce businesses mm. and are, are still, uh, obviously, your main gig is, is exec chair of Catapult, which is not really an e-commerce business mm-hmm. in any way, but... It's got an e-commerce arm, actually. So okay. Yeah, it sells consumer wearables. Okay. And so, you know, like the lower level, like kind of kids or serious amateurs that want to get, uh, measure their performance, et cetera, they can buy like a, a sub-elite version of the technology. Cool. And what, how's, how's that business going? Yeah, I mean, you know, like... Consumer is very different to B2B, and I think an organisation that's grown up being like a B2B organisation, especially selling to elite teams, which are, you know, they're a strange kind of customer to have. I think there's a learning curve, but the guy that uh, runs Catapult today, his name's Will Lopes, you know, he came out of uh, Audible and effectively was running Audible, so he's got a pretty strong background in consumer. So I think we feel hopeful about that business. This isn't obviously what the pod's about. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, so, your your catapult's actual product is is a great is a great tool for elite sports uh-huh. people, so NBA, NBL, AFL, etc. Uh-huh. Premier League. Uh, how does it work? So, if I'm just a, a random mm. sort of, uh, is this for like club fo- footballers, VAFA footballers, amateur footballers, or, or cricketers, or basketballs, or whatever who, who want to track that performance? How, how does it? Well, how does a consumer product work? So where the business started was the two founders invented a new category, which not many people can say they invented yeah. a new category. There was nothing, there was no real wearable that effectively said, how do we measure the performance of athletes but outside a lab, actually playing the sport that uh, that they're playing. And so they invented a device. They took advantage of uh, micro technologies rise and they invented a device that athletes could wear and it would measure like nowadays it measures more than a thousand data points a second and makes sense out of those and that was really the initial product now we've diversified out into like you know video analytics and a whole lot of tactical and coaching side of the business but you know when uh, when Sean Holthouse and Igor Vandergrind, who are the two founders, when they invented it, yeah, it was it was a brand new way of actually understanding exertion impact. Um, you know, it assisted with uh, um, uh, returning from injury, um, and so it started with elite teams. Like it started with the AFL actually, um, with elite teams, and made its way around the world. And now what we're seeing is it's pushing into lower and lower leagues. And so if we talk about England, because it's easiest to talk about tiers in England, you know, maybe it started in the EPL, but now there would be League One and League Two teams using it. So quite a way down. Um, and yeah, a few years ago we launched a product that that consumers could use as well. And so you know, if you're uh, kids playing and they're 15 years old and you want to see how they're doing and their exertion and how it compares to last time and where they've been on the field, etc. There's a version of that that uh, we sell it directly and through Amazon. So I've got that's a bit of an e-commerce business yeah. there. Cool. So that's super interesting. We could talk about that for for an hour, but I'd love to talk about, I guess, the rise 
and fall in a way of e-commerce over oh. the last two years. So you're actually involved in a couple of other e-commerce businesses. Sleeping uh-huh. Duck, you've had a big involvement, which has been a great story, uh-huh. and, and Daily Blooms, which uh-huh. is run by a fantastic entrepreneur called, called Courtney Ray, who's, which is doing fantastically well. So you, you've really got a, a great view of e-commerce uh, across the board. Uh, so we, we saw e-commerce gradually tweak up probably for the last 10 years. Uh-huh. Uh, really, eBay, I guess, was the first in Australia in the early 2000s. And we'll talk about Catch and Kogan in a few minutes, but they came on board Obviously, Amazon much more recently, I think 2017, Amazon launched here. And we saw e-commerce sort of gradually tweak. I think it got to about 10% of, of sales pre-COVID. And then we saw the COVID explosion uh, mm-hmm. and it went nuts. And and then we've seen almost the reverse, understandably, as people sort of start going to shops again. So you've been around for, for a while. Um, how, how do you make, what do you think the long-term trend is? Do you think that... I remember when I, when I spoke to David Schaefer for, for this pod, this had been mid-COVID, so they were going pretty well, mm. uh, David Schaefer and Kogan. And, and his view was once people try e-commerce, they won't go back. So that the Kogan mm. sort of uh, roller coaster was just accelerated what would have happened anyway. But we've actually seen that reverse. Uh, it's often, not often David's wrong, but I think he possibly got that well, one I'm wrong. Well, I mean, Schaefer's a very smart guy. I'm not, like, so I'm not sure he's entirely wrong, which I'll share a view on, but I'll tell you something funny. Do you know what my first ever e-commerce business was? You know, uh, do you know, phone cards? I was mobile, selling mobile phones on the internet on phones. in the yeah. late 90s. The, there were only two of us doing it. It was me, and I did it with my brother Gilly, and then the and I did it with the guy who's now uh, KC as well. He's yeah. to be a lawyer. And, um, and the other guys were like, Ari Klinger and Ben Chong who went on to launch Right Click. Yeah. And the crazy thing is the only people that were buying mobile phones off me in the late 90s online were criminals in Jogjakarta <laughs> in Indonesia. <laughs> so that was my entire target market was criminal. Yeah. And it wasn't great for the chargebacks, to be honest. So, <laughs> no, so I've kind of watched it for a little a little while. And um, so I have a slightly different view about it. And we have to say, you know, before, I mean, before, not necessarily before Catch and Kogan, but the one there are these businesses that people don't remember, right? Like Deals mm. Direct or Paul Greenberg yeah, and sure. OO.com.au. They were what around. What was the one that the Catch was similar to Catch? It was based in Zaz. Zaz. The one, the one that all both are based on Woot, which Amazon yes, eventually bought. that's right. I think it's amazing that um, Catch ended up to have more value than Woot. Like they copied this Woot <laughs> business, yeah. Amazon bought it, and they became more valuable in the business they copied. It's pretty impressive, yeah. right? Um, so I, this is when I look at. Um, what has happened. This is how I think about it. Like, during the pandemic, there was just this crazy situation. So I'm a a long-term believer in e-commerce. And so I think during the pandemic, there was this crazy situation where you had people that couldn't leave their house and were getting money. And they had to do something with that money. And they felt pretty depressed inside their house. I mean, we're mm. recording this in Melbourne, but like I mean, most places around the world, there was some lesser degree of lockdown catastrophe yeah. as we suffered in Melbourne. And so people are depressed and they've got money and they can't go out. And so they start doing nice things to their home. And I think what was interesting about that is that you had this huge level of demand come through and it was heavily focused on a, a, a small number of categories. Any, effectively, anything that you could use for working for home, from home or being at home. I mean, travel was not great, right? <laughs> and um, and so that the consequence of that was that businesses literally couldn't keep up with demand and the CACs, like the acquisition costs, like, I mean, they were basically asymptoting towards zero because you didn't even have to put an ad out there. People would find you because they were so desperate to buy. And the other thing yeah. that happened is you saw um, gross margins go through the roof because nobody discounted. Mm. And I remember like... Um, 
there were businesses that I'm involved in. There's a few e-commerce businesses that literally had to shut every day yeah. because they ran out of the ability to, to ship stock effectively. And so what I think is that, you know, you had this period and those CACs are not repeatable because those circumstances mm. were a one-off and they've changed. And now what you've got is some a little bit of bring forward in some categories where people who are thinking about buying something in the next couple of years bought it today. But I think really, you know, what you've got is... it's precisely the wrong time to make a long-term prediction about e-commerce because we saw this big jump in e-commerce penetration. And even more than that, people started buying things that they would never have bought previously. Like, obviously, I saw a lot of people buying mattresses, but sofas and, like, lots of bulky goods. And so that has really changed people's perception about buying a whole variety of new categories online. And now what we're seeing is a fall in e-commerce penetration. But I think a lot of that is just circumstantial. And I know that, um, the, you know, the Shopify CEO has said it's going to revert to normal growth rates because that's where it's back down to. I don't believe it. I think we're still in the post-e-commerce boom trough. And I think that once some of this um, bring forward, et cetera, starts flushing its way through, fundamentally the curve is going to be steeper than it was previously in terms of e-commerce uptake and the number of categories that see a significant proportion of their sales online will also increase because of people's preparedness to try new things online during the boom. So I think, Schaefer, I think you might be largely right about it. I, I agree with all that and I think it makes sense. I think the one thing that, that sort of doesn't really equate though is all these businesses got all those cheap customer acquisitions, so customer levels mm. skyrocketed over COVID. And once you've got a customer, you should be able to sell to them more easily than if you didn't have them. So the, the Catch of the Kogans, the Amazon, whatever, all had lots more customers. Yeah, they've all seen a massive revert. Like, uh, bring forward makes sense. But we're seeing much, a significant drop in sales. And some of these customers should, should have stayed as customers. Uh, they kind of brought, being brought, they've got to be buying some sort of stuff. So mm. that's what sort of doesn't make full sense. Yeah, the drop-off's well, been significant. So I think, you know, there's different kinds of, I mean, you, you know, there's, there's different kinds of um, like e-commerce businesses. And you've got an e-commerce business where you have nice repeat purchasing. It's good quality travel products. There's a nice hook in there. And so there's good repeat purchasing. But, and you know, you're a unique third-party retailer because the way that you package up the product almost makes it unique to you as a business. But there are a lot of third-party retailers going around that I would not want to swap places with. Like, I don't like third-party retail. Generally, I like first-party direct-to-consumer. You sell the product that's your own stuff. So just to explain what third, but people are listening, third-party is a marketplace, for example. Or, a, or se- oh, I would just call it selling other people's stuff, you know? Yeah. Could be through a marketplace, could be, you know, I mean... in. in the old days, you just put it in a warehouse, but you weren't selling your stuff. And so, like, Adore Beauty is a good example of yep. selling somebody else's stuff, and they're trying to move to their own stuff now. Yep. And, like, everybody wants to do that. And so, they're the businesses I prefer to get involved in, direct-to-consumer. And what I think is, like, the two factors that are causing problems for e-commerce retailers today, one is, yes, people are still buying something, but they're not buying as much. And also... They bought all the big stuff. Like, that's bought. So the basket sizes are not going to be the same. The second problem is a lot of people are selling other companies' stuff. And when I go and buy something, I go and search for the product, and probably I'll use Google Shopping or whatever it might be, and I'll say who's selling it the cheapest. And I might not buy from a retailer that I think is ultra dodgy, but there's probably a dozen retailers that I've bought for, from previously. Yeah. And so whoever's got a good deal and can get it to me quickly, like that's who I'm buying from. And so I think that's one of the challenges in in getting repeat purchasing in like commoditized spaces, third-party retail spaces. That makes sense. Let's talk about a couple of the individual stars of the pandemic and, and, and sort of there's a couple of really interesting ones. So one, 
let's talk about Kogan first because obviously we know Ruslan and David very well, both great friends and great guys. They had this absolute roller, roller coaster. They mm. were, I think the share price was about seven bucks pre-COVID, so it done pretty well. I think it floated a dollar fifty. This is a, a pretty impressive story, mm. and I think it hit twenty, almost hit twenty-five bucks. So that valued the business about two point five billion mm. in October twenty twenty. So that's that's Victorian lockdown mm-hmm. two, I guess, uh, two or six. Uh, and then it was sort of downhill after that. So I think, the, the, I think it dropped to two seventy. So it dropped about ninety percent. Uh, so as as most, yeah. most things, it tends to overcorrect and then has bounced back. Uh, but if you look at Kogan, it's actually still a pretty decent business. It, it basically broke even. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, uh, I think first quarter results, it increased its Kogan first, which is effectively Amazon Prime, by forty eight percent to three hundred eighty five thousand. That's a pretty nice. These uh-huh. people are all paying pay money to Kogan. Uh, and it's got about 130 million bucks in revenue and almost a billion dollars in sales. So it's not a, it's certainly not a bad business. Uh-huh. It's now, I think the market value is at 400 odd million or even less, uh-huh. uh, down from 2.5 billion. Uh, but I think the, the, despite David and Russell being two of the best operators in the country, uh, there is one big problem they've gone, that's Amazon. Uh-huh. Uh, how much of, of Kogan's difficulties are just being against this Goliath that's losing $300 million a year in Australia and doesn't uh-huh. seem to care? Yeah, I mean, I think all of those points are great. This is what I think about Kogan. I mean, one is it's hard for any company to ever acquire Kogan outright because Rosalind's like too much of a personality, right? Yeah. And you're going to have to acquire him as a personality <laughs> as well. And so somebody might do it because they're, I mean, I think they're very cheap now. But um, I think that that's, he's a bit of the X factor that makes it, like, like my deal was an easy acquisition given that Woolworths wanted it because it was there to buy and there was no huge personality We'll, get to, we'll get to my deal in a second. Um, yeah. yeah. But, and so what I think, about Kogan though is it's got something that very, very, very few other retailers have, which is a real brand. Like mm, it has a real absolutely. honest brand and they started off selling other people's stuff and on a discounting kind of business and, you know, that was their origin. But if you look at their business today, I mean, it's full of their own branded stuff. Yeah. A lot of it is actually, in my experience, quite high quality stuff. Like it's mm. really moved up. I think they don't get the benefit of that with their brand. Like people still expect, you know, the cheap side of things with yeah. their brand. But, you know, if I had to bet on an e-commerce business that was going to be a significant cash generator in 10 years' time, I, I don't know about one year's time, but in 10 years' time, I think that would be near the top of my list. I think fundamentally their brand stands for something and um, people think – there's many people who have had the experience, which is I tried this expensive European thing and it broke. And then I went to Kogan and bought their TV or their whatever, and it has been fine. And yeah. I saved a lot of money. I think, you know, Amazon is a complete unknown. I don't know if the people inside Amazon know what their Australian plans are, <laughs> but um, but it's definitely not to make money anytime soon, presumably. But I think that um, of all of the uh, of all of the retailers trying to compete with Amazon, I think Kogan's in one of the best position. They're much less reliant on marketplace revenue and they've got their own brand and their own stuff that they're rolling out. So I, I'm more positive about them. I agree. That. That's true. I think that, I mean, Charlie, look at, look at, I bought lots of stuff from Kogan and like you, I, I, I don't think I've had a bad experience with any Kogan yeah. stuff. I think it's always been pretty good. Uh, I think the one thing that, that, and this is not a Kogan issue, this is an Amazon issue. Like I've, I, I was looking for a slow cooker about a month ago mm-hmm. and it was a Saturday morning, 9.30. Jumped on Amazon. Oh, no, I jumped on Google Shopping. Maybe Amazon came up, paid sixty bucks for a, some sort of brand. Not 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 an incredible brand, but it, it came in seven hours on From a Saturday. Amazon, yeah, and I, I, it was free because I got Amazon Prime. Yeah. So how does anyone compete with that? That is just in, I, just a, as a as a comparison. I, I booked a couple of pairs of pants online a couple of weeks ago, and 
it's been 11 days, hasn't come. I ordered a Thai if Amazon came next day. Yeah. It's, how do any of these Australian well, businesses compete? Well, this is Amazon's hook, right? Because I, I, they're not, they're often not the cheapest in the marketplace anymore. They're not, they're, they're, they're not expensive usually, but they're often not the cheapest. Uh, what do I think about that? I think there's a broader question about whether this speed of delivery is going to be a long-term feature in e-commerce. And so, like, this is a very contrarian view, but I've increasingly, like, Gen Z, there are some things that Gen Z does not like, and one of those is environmental damage. Mm. And so I've been reading an increasing number of pieces that have been written in various publications talking about the environmental cost of that extremely rapid delivery process because, obviously, like, the vehicles are not necessarily full, etc. And so... I'm not sure if in half a decade's time you will be able to get free virtually instant delivery. The second point is I'm not sure it's going to be delivered by people. Like at some point it's going to swap to automated delivery. Um, I think it's going to be harder than people think at the moment because it's very noisy to hear drones above your head and it's a lot of noise pollution and they fall on people's heads occasionally. (laughs) And so, but, um, But you're right. Like if nothing changes and the world moves forward with this kind of insanely fast delivery, then either non-Amazon retailers are going to find a solution and it might be a third-party mediated solution or they're going to go out of business for the reasons that you just said because people people are, people will pay for convenience, basically. I think the, the ultra-fast delivery, the milk runs, the go-puffs is another episode that's probably worth discussing. But um, I think we've got the shared cynicism on that, don't we? Uh, no? Maybe not as cynical as maybe you think I would be. Okay, I think I think the go-puff model, I think when you get to scale, it actually can work. But that's it, again, we can talk about that. Let's stick to sort of broader uh-huh. e-commerce and the Australian businesses. And without, it's impossible to take the Kogan and not speak about that great rival catch of the day. Mm. Both started by... Two guys in, in Melbourne. Uh, so Gabby and Hezzy Levovich obviously started... Two hustlers, I would say. Four, you know? Yeah, four hustlers. Four so, hustlers. Exactly, uh, and, that's and right. And four incredibly smart male, all males, uh, all about 30 when they started the business, which is which is pretty common, unfortunately. Uh, before Gabby and Hezzy started the business in 2006, grew... And you, you know, obviously know the guys very well and wrote an incredible article for the Financial Review about six months ago, I think, on, on their story. Uh, but so they, they famously... Started the business and sold it to West Farmers in 2019 for 233 million dollars mm. cash, which was which was when you look, I thought it was a fantastic sale at the time. And then it was a great sale. Yeah, there's nothing else you can say about it. It was uh, it was a strategic buyer, which I always characterise as you can't justify the price on multiples. Well, you're right. I and mean, then you look at fast forward a year, and that business is arguably you know you can question whether it was at the time, but arguably worth two billion. So it looked like. Gavin, has he done... It was $2 billion, but nobody could ever have gotten their full exit for $2 billion. Probably not. But if you look at what, what Rosalind David sold at 20 bucks yeah. a share, it's, and, and completely legitimately, it uh-huh. could have got some value. But uh, So you look at... So they, they, they sold a business to 33, which is, I agree with you, I think a really good sale, and I've told the guys as much. And then due to no fault of their own, COVID happens, the business is briefly worth $2 uh-huh. billion. But if you if you look forward, Gavin Hezzy are the smartest guys in the room again because that business is and this didn't hasn't got much publicity, but it lost forty four million dollars mm. in two thousand and twenty one. This is during COVID, should I add, and somehow lost eighty eight million last year. Which is and we get this is from the West Farmers Annual Report. This is one of the great feats of of um, value destruction to lose one hundred thirty two million dollars. Got my maths right there after paying two thirty three in the greatest e commerce boom in history. So Kogan was making ten million bucks a month um, during this period, and Catch is losing money hand over fish. How did that? How did that happen? Uh, how did West Farmers 
stuff it up so badly. Well, I've seen the numbers of a lot of businesses. There's not a single other e-commerce business that I have found that lost money during the pandemic. Not one. Um, I would say, you know, a lot, like probably both of us had front row seats <laughs> to Gabby's emotional roller coaster during that period and having sold for this great price and then watching it go to $2 billion and then realising, you know, that may not be the situation forever. Um, and, you know, it just shows how much luck there is. Yeah. What I think is this, um, that it wouldn't have lost money had the previous, had the founders still been running it, just because their pockets would not have been deep enough to fund those losses, yeah. and they wouldn't have had the appetite for those losses. That's not to say, you know, there are not things that West Farmers has probably done well. I suspect, you know, they've systematised some stuff pretty well. I, I think the problem is fundamentally this. When someone owns a business, they watch every dollar going into that bank account, they think about it, if not every cent that's being spent, then, you know, certainly the large expenditures and um, their decisions about where you're going to be tomorrow as a business are predicated on surviving through today. And I think West Farmers has a luxury of not having that particular approach. And you'd have to say it's worked for them. I mean, that is a high value conglomerate. And generally, their retail businesses, I mean, you know, it's a bit patchy, you know, their Target versus Kmart situation. Certainly, Kmart has been a very strong business. You know, Target's had its ups Bunnings, and downs. Bunnings has been a great business. Bunnings has been incredible. Yeah, I mean, so they're good operators. My guess is they probably brought a management team in that was not right for the moment in history that they were confronting. Mm. And so that didn't work out well for them. And they probably corporatized it too much too quickly because everyone left. I mean, if you looked yeah. at just the number of people that had been there for an extended period that moved on in within the first three months of that acquisition, mm. like that's a very big problem to lose that kind of, um, you know, institutional memory inside a business. So I think, you know, fundamentally making money just wasn't as important to them as building this brand and building this long-term future. I thought the logical thing to do with that business, because I, I think what they've done well is they've taken, you know, Gabby and Hezzy's version of this Amazon Prime, which wasn't fantastic, <laughs> and uh, I paid for it. I was a member as well. I yeah, yeah, we were all members, yeah. but like, you know, well, let's not call it Amazon Prime. Yeah. And um, and they turned it into this one pass across yeah. West Farmers brands. That That's good, right? Because I'll buy stuff from Kmart mm. and it will be a low value item, but I'll buy it because it's free delivery. Yeah. And so definitely it's increased my purchasing at these uh, retailers. Sure. So I think there is a future and they should use it as an e-commerce platform. I felt like it could have been the solution to Target's problems, to be honest. Mm. Um, obviously it's not anymore, but um, you know, I think that that's what happened. I, I just think it was unique and it wouldn't have occurred if uh, if it would have still been in Gabby and Hezzy's hands. I think Hezzy, Hezzy probably got the greatest strategic mind in Australian business and Gabby, one of the great operators. And then with Anise, one of the great product guys who obviously yeah. left as well. So to lose that kind of talent. And Pete Salborn, who took over, was a, was a lovely guy and, and a pretty smart guy from Amazon. So uh, I, I, think you're, I think that the corporate... Corporates tend to not do e-commerce well. It's hard to think of a corporate that's ever done it well. Uh, and... That sort of leads us to, if you look at where most of the catch team went, it was a little business called My Deal, which is yeah. run by Sean Severantine. It just literally lives around the corner for me, just and around the corner from the studio. And that he, might, he might be moving soon. Yeah, to, to <laughs> next to Rosalind. I think that was probably, if you look at the greatest exit oh of all God. time, I, I may, actually probably Afterpay is probably the greatest exit of all time, but take well, out Afterpay. A, well, if you think it was an exit. We've had that discussion. It's not really an exit. It'll what, be it Afterpay or is, is Afterpay. 
Oh, they got, Afterpay they, will they facilitate no, no an escrow, exit. though. But any, any, yeah, yeah, they'll, it'll facilitate an exit now at a much lower valuation. But Sean got an exit, which is like, yeah. just here's like a lump of gold bricks for you to take home. <laughs> you know? So what it was playing, so my deal was essentially a, a, a classic marketplace, like an eBay competitor yeah. in many ways. And then they got a bit of their own first-party product as well towards during COVID. But uh, so Sean's a lovely guy. Um, and he went through, I mean, God, it was not an easy journey for him. Yeah, and obviously Paul Greenberg, one of, the, one of the great guys of e-commerce, helping him out as chairman. But so we had a business that lost five million in two thousand twenty-one. Yeah. Again, during COVID, uh, and this could be the exception to your COVID making money rule, actually, because they lost five million in twenty twenty-one. They lost fifteen million in twenty twenty-two. So this is not quite catch levels of loss making, but not mm. that far off it. Uh, and along comes, and, the, and then then the tech crash happens. So at least West Farmers can say West Farmers bought pre-crash. So in this case, we had a, a COVID boom and then most shares were off 30, 40, 50%. Mm. And then along comes uh, Woolworths. Who, remember, remember Woolworths bought this business called Easy Buy mm. about eight years ago. I mean, that was a catastrophe. I think they lost 300 million on it. And that, one of the worst acquisitions of all time. This is probably, Marzio's worse in a sense that everybody knew that, well, A, they paid a 6 percent premium and B, the market had crashed and C, this business made no money. So uh, other than Sean being a great guy and us all being, obviously wouldn't have filmed this before the deal closed, but yeah. uh, how on earth does does Woolworths pay 260 million bucks for a business that, that I know, probably wouldn't have made any money? And by the way, you know, Easy Buy is not a bad business. Like I forget, um, like a guy called Richard Faccioni bought that. I forget his yeah. the name of his business, but I think he's doing pretty well with <laughs> it. So like, he's a smart operator, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think they might just be a bit of a Woolworths e-commerce acquisition problem going on. Um, you know, they've, I think, didn't Woolworths also take a stake in, what's the marketplace that has bike exchange? Marketplacer? Wasn't oh, so that them as well? I wasn't sure if they did. I thought they had a yeah. stake in Marketplacer as well, and that didn't quite work out for them. So I think they've got some e-commerce problems, Woolworths. Yeah. Um, although Big W seems to work, frankly. Yeah, so Woolworths as a supermarket's yeah, a pretty good works. experience as well. So I, I'm, I mean, I think they felt like they had to make an acquisition. I, th- my ge- I think my understanding was that they had not had the kind of success with e-commerce and marketplaces that they felt they needed to grow as a business, and there wasn't a lot left. So Cash was gone. They can't buy Kogan because for the reasons I said earlier, right? There's just too much of a personality going on in there. I don't, yeah. I don't say that – I mean, you know, my view is like – I don't say that in a derogatory way as well at all. Yeah. I just think that's not a corporate kind of yeah. persona. And so they don't have a lot of options, right? Like what are they left with? And so they end up – I think I read that it was the fifth or sixth largest marketplace in Australia. And so they buy yeah. this, you know, really I would call it a subscale marketplace run by a great guy with a great chairman. Yeah. And I think I would just put it down to this. It seems too coincidental for this not to be true, that the price was based on the IPO price and the fact that they didn't want to yeah. like leave investors yeah. with a loss so soon after an IPO. And I think if you're Woolworths, whether you pay 260 or 160 or 60, you know, it's yeah. all hitting the balance sheet. Yeah. It doesn't affect your P&L. Yeah. It's all the same number at that kind of size of a business. Yeah. And I feel like they just said, we have to have this because we need an e-commerce play and there's not much left and this will end up going as well at some point in time. Yeah. And so you ended up in, I mean, you can't build a business as a founder planning for this kind of exit <laughs> because nine times out of 10 or 99 out of 100, you'll just be broke. But I think that um, they built enough value in there for Woolworths for them mm. to say, look, whatever this costs... We, we can afford to pay it without it impacting our our uh, our bank balance too much. Yeah. So we're just going to buy it. Yeah. I think that is just you know persistence eventually leading to a lucky moment. <laughs> I think. I love seeing a good guy just 
take 100%. a couple hundred million bucks off a, oh, a so big corporation. That make yeah. I mean, you know, you see all these terrible people that are so rich and making so much money. <laughs> and every time a nice, good person makes money, it's just like, a, it's just a win for humanity, you know? So, yeah, that's what I... Let's go one more because we're running shorter time, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. called Setire. Yes. C-E-T-T-I-R-E. So these are effectively a, a flash sales business for products. So history, we ran, a, we bought a business called Brands Exclusive mm-hmm. from, from ABM. That. Uh, in probably one of the dumbest acquisitions of all time, which oh, I, I presided I over. I don't um, reckon it, that list is too competitive for you to be in the top 10. I'll be, be on there. Um, so we, we end up, we probably lost about 80 million bucks buying this business. Okay. Uh, we went with all the right intentions and, and tried our best. 80 million real dollars? Uh, not, well, not really. Well, there's a bit of opportunity cost in there, but it's about what we put our losses yep. at. Uh, you could argue it's more, you could argue it's less, depends how you look at it. But And we bought it from AP and ARN, mm-hmm. now known as HTE, who who also probably lost a bit, but but did pretty well on our trade. Uh, and, and the guys who found it did really well, Rolf and Daniel, who, who could made some mine. Uh, so the problem with that business was, is customers loved it, but you just, we just, by the end of the business, we just couldn't get our hands on stock. So what, yeah. what you basically do is, how that business worked is, SAS and Bide, for example, would make too many genes, they'd need to get rid of them, they'd come to us, and we'd, we'd buy, we'll, we wouldn't buy them, we'd get them consignment, we'd say, we'll sell those genes for you, we'll give you 20 bucks a pair of genes, you're not going to get 100 like you get from Myra or David Jones, but 20 bucks is better than mm-hmm. zero, you don't have to get rid of them, we'll, we'll sell them for you. Mm-hmm. But if, the problem was, if we got SAS and Bide, we'd sell 200 grand in a day, no problem, it'd sell out, everybody's happy, SAS and Bide's happy, well, yeah. happy-ish, customers love it, and we just sit in the middle. Problem was, the SAS and buy to this world just got a lot better at managing stock. Yeah. So there's just no excess stock around. This has been the same case for, for these businesses everywhere around the world. Uke's Netta Porter, which was the sort of big daddy of mm-hmm. this stuff, ended up sort of selling to Richemont for a billion euros, far less. I think it was worth four and a half at one point. So this is a tough business. And this satire business came from nowhere really sort of 18 months ago. And I think he had a valuation of 1.6 billion yeah. with a B. Uh, this is a guy who started a business of a model that we know doesn't work because nobody's been able to get it to work. Oh, sale was worth 500 million. Now it's worth about 20 million. So this is a graveyard. And he's using using photos that are like the stock photos of the actual brand themselves. So he's not even reshooting the images. We we reshot the images. Yes, I understand that. Yeah, you got to etch them and deep etch them, send them to the Philippines. So it's a really hard business. Yeah, no, but my understanding is Setai was just using the stock images that were being possibly off the website, off wherever of these brands. So we had this Setai business that uh, hit 1.6 billion somehow. I think it lost 25 million last year. And then the share price obviously dropped with everything else, but bizarrely announced a 5.5 million EBITDA first quarter this year, which is one of the greatest comebacks in profitability mm. I've ever seen, uh, given it was not even close to profitability last year. So it's unaudited. They didn't include stuff like options and a bunch of stuff that mm. that was conveniently ignored. But nonetheless, it's still valued at $680 million for a business that, let's say the $5 million is legit and it's making 20 annually or 25 annually. That's still a pretty big yes. multiple. Uh what do you think? What do you make of this business? Have you have you looked at it much? You know, I've been asked about this business so many times. <laughs> All through the boom, people were asking me about it. Um, I could never get my head around it. Like, so I don't understand where the stock's coming from because you know these businesses. I mean, this concept is an old concept, yeah. right? Like, it's I mean, way before we've been walking the <laughs> and you know, the, like in the US, they've got all this overstock business yeah. where anybody can Oversold. go into, Yeah, and you can just go and buy pellets of stuff and resell it on eBay. I mean, that was what's big the, in the um, 2000s. What's the business, you the, the, the bricks and mortar version? Um, I forget. I like uh, TJ Maxx. TJ Maxx, TJ Maxx, yeah. Max. yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is actually quite a good business, but it's a, it's a real, it's a... And they have volume, stores. right? They've got yeah. volumes and they've got relationships with... And so most of the stock that these businesses have often comes out of 
department stores that can't move it yep. and they pack it all up and dump it to somebody else. And the thing is, I think these are great businesses, not at scale. So yep. they're a good business for someone to own and to make a few million dollars profit a year for their own personal lifestyle business. But when you try to scale them, you run into the problems that I think that you ran into with Brands Exclusive. I used to buy and sell like fax machines and <laughs> photocopies from auctions. And it was great as a, like a small business while I was a medical student, but I couldn't have scaled it into a billion dollar business. There's no stock availability. So I agree with you. Like Seto, it's never been clear to me how that business operates. It's got audited accounts. Now, that maybe it counts for something, maybe it well, doesn't. Q1's unaudited, so... I know, but historically, it's, you know, got fully audited accounts. Yeah, it's and we did lose $25 million in the yeah. last, in last but year. But even that. that, like, it's not even the losses yeah. or the profits that's confusing to me. It is how they get the volume of mm. inventory to sell True. this dollar amount. It was $200 million last year, and which so, is that's what I've never, Chunky. but it's, so it's not to say, I mean, I'm, I'm cautious in saying this because I don't know. I don't know, but I, I have your, and I'm not even skeptical. I'm just confused yeah. about how they get the volume of stock under this model. I'm, I'm skeptical. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't done the deepest of dives into it, but it's traffic is reasonable. That said, it's traffic's about a 10th of Farfetch. Mm -hmm. Yet it's, I think Farfetch is worth about, well, three, three billion. So it seems toppy. If you compare based on traffic versus Farfetch, which is clearly the market leader and does a really good job. I think it's out of the States, Farfetch. So Farfetch bought Netaporter and Ukes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, it's probably, if you include the Netaporter and Ukes' traffic, there'd be, a, there'd be about $6 million a month versus uh, well above it. Uh, so the valuation seems toppy regardless. I mean, if he, if he has found a way of getting stock that nobody else can get and sell, then eventually he'll work out his CAC, maybe he'll have repeat visitors, and he will yep. end up making a lot of money. Yeah. I just, I would like to know the secret of where the hell that stock is from, as I'm yeah. sure you would have a few years ago, right? When you were doing brands exclusive. Yeah, I think the challenge is definitely less on the customer side. The customers love it. It's discounted. Yeah. It's good product. It's good stock. I think the challenge is on the, on the stocks, stock acquisition side. How do you get your, and one of the hard things about, and this is a, when they have to about our business, but you don't, you don't really want a business that you have to fight for your product. Mm -hmm. You want a business that products are easy. Well, now you know why I love direct to consumer because the product yeah. is mine. Like, yeah, we make it; it's all ours. It's great There's margin. an unlimited amount of it. Yeah, you're not pa paying any margins to anybody between manufacture and retail. Like, yeah. and generally you can get stock. Although it's hard in the pandemic sometimes, yeah. but generally you can get stock with that. I can't believe there's a few more that you haven't fired off for. That's all I've got for this one, but what, who, have I, who have I gotten? You've, you've left out all of the ones that I could be nasty about. Oh, let's be nasty about one. Choose one to be nasty about. <laughs> it's, a tough, it's a tough call. We don't have to be nasty about it. We can say this. Like, so, Redbubble. You talked about an Amazon. Are you probably... Yeah. Like, well, I've, 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 a bit, I've had a bit of a fight with Martin. Oh, so have you? Yeah. Let's go to a different episode okay. on Redbubble. All right. Shall I give you another one? Yeah, give me another one. Temple and Webster. Okay. Okay. I don't think that'd be I don't think that'd be on the, that'd be on the on the bad list. So I'm not, right? I'm not bashing them. Okay. But the question is this: so one of the constant conversations I have with founders is about SKUs. So, like, yeah. how many stock units do you have? How yeah. many different things are you selling? Yeah. And so I like to sell not many. Yeah. Because it's a nightmare, right? And so yeah. one of the this is Daily Blooms, which has only one SKU, doesn't it? Well, or? it's got more than one. But yeah. Daily Blooms, exactly. You can go on and you can buy a couple of different. Well, white flowers or coloured flowers in yep. a few sizes, and maybe there's some limited edition stuff there as well. But yep. you're right; like it keeps the skews low. Historically, like I like selling one mattress; that's great, yep. you know. So I like low number of skews. Temple and Webster, and so I think furniture. So my view is that there will be a wave of growth in furniture retailing online because yep. I think that that's what the pandemic has desensitised the sense. market to. But 
just this huge volume of SKUs. So trying to be everything to everyone, which is them, but it's also businesses like Castlery, maybe Brocery is another one, a bit different. Yep. I, I quite like Castlery stuff that they sell. Like, what is your take on, I mean, have you had any exposure to massive number of SKU businesses? Not really. Actually, if you look at Temple Webster, Temple Webster were a competitor. We had a business called The Home and Temple Webster was exact same. It was a flash sales model for homewares. Mm -hmm. And they very shrewdly realised we've got to go marketplace mm -hmm. and got out of that. Uh, so Susie was, was CEO there and obviously uh, Conrad and Mark were running it. This is one of the great pivots of all time. Mm. These guys took a business that was really worth zero. I think it actually was, had an EV of zero. And I think it had a couple of billion at one point it's still but it's still valued at well over 500 and, and it makes genuine this business actually makes genuine money uh, as opposed to a lot of the other ones we spoke about actually i'm, I'm bullish on us bullish but i think it's i'm not bearish if that makes sense I'm, i think it's a fairly valued at 500 million 600 million bucks i'm not going to run out and buy shares in it but i think i think it's not badly valued as opposed to some other businesses that you see out there it's not it's not 270 million bucks for for my deal yeah, I agree with that. Like, if you could take that at twice the price of my gel, you take it. I totally. It's like horses for courses, right? Different objectives. No, I'm just like it, businesses with very large number number of SKUs. So it's unclear to me whether they're a marketplace or whether they're just a retailer selling you know mm. stuff out of China or wherever it comes yep. from. And I can't work out which one I'd rather be over the long term. Yeah. Like I think they've said that they're pivoting more away from being a marketplace and towards their own stuff. Yeah. I think that would be my preference. But generally my view is the businesses that I've seen that make the most money, because, I mean, you know, it used to be very popular to make money in retail. <laughs> so the businesses that I say make the most money, they pick a few really great items that people love and yeah. try and keep the number of SKUs down and say, like, this is how we're going to optimise for profitability. And I just yeah. look at Templin Webster and I wonder, like you will talk about Amazon, I mean... I don't know, maybe Amazon will buy them. Maybe that's a nice furniture business. But yeah. to me, yeah, I'm, I'm unsure about that business. I was looking because it was obviously based on on Wayfair, which had a similar that's run up. Right. I was looking at, looking at Wayfair's share price now. So it hit. Well, Wayfair heavily fell out of favour. Wayfair hit 400 bucks. It dropped about 90 percent, like pretty much yeah. everything. Uh, so it was worth about 40 billion US at one point. Wayfair now it's 3.5. So. Um, that said, not that different to Temple. Uh, so Wayfair is a really similar model. So it's obviously had its I own struggle. It's the same business, right? Yeah. Effectively. And the question is whether, you know, you talk about Amazon with Kogan because they're in that category. But the question is whether Amazon, look, are they going to move into furniture at any point in time? I think that's harder. I think to your point, it's harder on a market. That's why I actually don't mind. I quite like the browser business had Ivan on the show yeah. a couple months ago. Uh, and I, don't, I don't mind that business. It's, 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 it's a really hard business, which is why well, that's I'm what I don't like it. about it. Um, but the beauty is that's a real, it's a great barrier. Amazon's not coming in and doing furniture because it's simply just too hard. Uh, yeah, but if a business is hard, it's a good barrier. The thing is, it needs to get easy for you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> for that to work. I think it gets easier though. I think I think Bros has gotten easier from the days of the guys unloading pallets on a Saturday afternoon. So it's, it's definitely I buy stuff easier. from them. I like their stuff. Yeah. But so many SKUs and like, you know, bulky goods, delivering mm. bulky goods in Australia. Are you, I mean, you don't have that much experience delivering bulky goods in Australia. Not, like, no. it's a nightmare. Like, ask Schaefer next time he's on here <laughs> about. We did sell bed heads at the home. Uh, that, that was great profit, but God, I think we, we gave it all back to the 3BL. Oh, it's, it's crazy. You virtually have to do it yourself. So I think, um, to me, um, I think the thing to watch is going to be CACs because all of these listed businesses lied to the market, <laughs> in my view, after COVID, and they said, yeah. we're investing in marketing, we're investing in growth. What they were really saying is, we can't control the CACs. They're out of control after COVID. I, I don't think they're ever coming back, by the way. Yeah. Um, but it will be interesting to see what how people report their, their acquisition costs.
Adir, thanks for joining us. That was insightful as always. Nice chatting. This show was produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. <laughs>